Let's pray and we'll get into the message. Oh, God, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word, um, to sing to you, to seek you, and to be renewed in the faith that many of us share. Um, God, I pray that we would be an encouragement to, a, to each other and that your Holy Spirit would move in us and encourage us. And God, I pray for those who are here still trying to figure out who you are and what to do with you and, and whether we can trust you. Or those who have said, yeah, I trust you for salvation, but I'm, I'm struggling to trust you with my daily life and my joy and following you instead of following whatever urges I have. Lord, I pray that today would be a day where we could all joyfully come to repentance, um, where we could turn from whatever silliness we're pursuing and run straight after you. Amen. All right, so once again, I'm going to say uh, happy or merry almost Christmas. Uh, we're, we're not quite there yet. We're two weeks out, but we're, we're in our Advent series. And Advent just means coming because these last few weeks leading up to Christmas, they are the time when the church traditionally celebrates and, and remembers the first coming of Jesus. Uh, so the first week of this series, we talked about hope. Second week, we talked about grace. This week, I want to look at the Christmas story through the lens of light breaking into darkness. Because that is, is one of the huge themes of Scripture, and I think that it's just a great fit for us. You know, living in the midst of a Michigan winter, you know, we're halfway into December, and, and the gloom has begun to come. And, and you know, just, just the discouragement that comes when you look out the, the window and, and everything is cold and nothing is bright and, and the trees are dying. And, you know, you're like, if, if I go out there, it's going to be frostbite and, and I don't want that. Preach. You know, but there's such a beautiful contrast between light and darkness where darkness, you know, we associate it with, with gloom and depression and cold, but, but light we associate with warmth and joy and hope. You know, so, so when it gets colder outside and, and it isn't all that bad yet, but, but it'll get there. When it gets colder outside and we're at that place where, you know, just going from your car into the house, it feels terrible. You know, that's, that's what moves us to build fireplaces, you know, and to come snuggle up by the fireplace where we can see the flicker of light. And, and that light brings heat and, the, and the, just watching the fire dance, it just, at least for me, it, it spurs me to think of the beauty of my God and the wonder of his creation and all that God has done for me so far and, and what he will yet do. You know, darkness we associate with gloom and cold, but light we associate with, with warmth and joy and hope. Um, likewise, thinking about darkness, darkness is scary and unnerving, but, um, but light brings peace and rest. Some of you, some of you macho men and, and macho ladies, you know, you're probably not afraid of the dark, but, but for me, like, like if I'm with somebody else, like, like, you know, when, even when my kids were little, if I've got like four-year-old Chloe to protect, hold her hand, I'll go out in the darkness, no problem. But, but when I'm home alone, you know, and, and there's, there's, there's some, and, and it's dark and it's late and there's, there's some sounds that are unfamiliar. There's, there's a scratch or a scrape or a, or a, or a, or a tick or, or worse, an animal noise. 
you know, a buzz or a flutter or an indiscriminate animal noise. I have no idea what it is. I do not. I've, I've been there. If you've been at church, you know that I've been there. I do not want a bat dive bombing me in my living room at night. That is scary. Darkness is scary and unnerving. But light brings peace and rest. Finally, darkness, it's secretive and sometimes even wicked, but light reveals truth and righteousness. If you know my sleep schedule, you know I'm not a big believer in that expression, nothing good happens after midnight. But at the same time, I get it. Because as it gets, as it gets later, as it gets darker, as more and more people go to sleep, sometimes the temptations become more tempting. You know, our, our, our willpower goes away as we, as we get more tired. And, and maybe it's just something of the reality that no one else is around. There's, there's no one else to see my secret sin. And I can pretend it didn't happen if nobody else sees it. And I can pretend that it's not corrupting my character. I can, I, I can pretend that there's, there's no consequences to me stepping outside of God's will. Even though there is. But God has come to us in order that we might experience light. Apostle Paul writes about this idea saying, you were once darkness. Not just that you once lived in darkness or walked in darkness or or had fellowship with darkness. No, you once were darkness. It defined you to the core. But writing to believers, he says, now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. And and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Which we're so tempted to stumble into. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret, that that secrecy that comes with darkness. But everything exposed to the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. Darkness is secretive and sometimes wicked, but light reveals truth and righteousness. And in the opening pages of Scripture, God speaks into the darkness, let there be what? Let there be light, and there was light. And what we see is that that sin reintroduces the dominant theme of darkness almost immediately. And yet God continues to speak. And with his word, he continues to bring light. And through his people, he continues to send light, and he calls us to be light. And the Christmas story is just one more place where we see the light of God. So this morning, we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to see light promised. And then we're going to turn to the Gospels, and we're going to see light incarnate. And then we're going to see how God has designed us to not just be recipients of his light, but conduits of his light. And see how how by God's design, his light can shine us. So if you have a Bible, Bible app, whatever you got, um, feel free to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. A little bit of context, what's going on there. Um, 
the book of Isaiah in general, it offers a lot of hope and a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of prophecy of the coming of Jesus. But the dominant theme in that book is judgment. And the context of this passage, if you go through chapter 8, and particularly the latter end of chapter 8, the dominant theme is God's judgment for his unfaithful people. Um, at that time, the nation of Israel, it was divided into two halves, and, and they were disproportional halves. But the ten northern tribes, they constituted what was known as the kingdom of Israel at that time. And a couple of southern tribes, they were the, they were the kingdom of Judah. And by that time, the Assyrians had invaded. They were, they were the great ruling power, um, like in the 700s BC. And, and the Assyrians had come and they'd begun to invade. They'd begun to, to take the outlying areas into captivity, beginning with some of the northernmost tribes, like Zebulun, Naphtali. They're going to get mentioned here in a minute. So, so the nation's already beginning to go into captivity, and their capital city of Samaria, it is soon going to fall. And chapter, chapter 8, it ends with the reality that, that Judah is also in fear of being taken into captivity. But in the midst of their fear, they're not turning back to God. They're turning to all of these like crazy um, political alliances and, and schemes and superstitions and, and false religions and, and false prophets. And what we basically see is that the, as, as the danger and the fear dials up, that instead of running to God, they keep on running to a false hope. They keep on running to any of these other counterfeit gods. And as they run to these, these false hopes, hope that, that really is no hope at all, their lives and their circumstances continue to become more dark and dangerous and deadly and depressing and gloomy. That's just the situation that they're in. But God promises that his people will not remain in darkness. His light, in fact, is already on the way. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 begins, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, he being God, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Again, these are, these are among the northern tribes, first to go into captivity, um, tribes that were to carry the shame of their unfaithfulness all the way up into Jesus' day. Back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But in the future, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. And these are synonymous titles. This, is, this region was, was known for the tribes that settled it. It was also known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Meaning this northern region where, where the faithful Jewish people, they, they mixed with the unfaithful pagan people, the Gentiles. If you don't know what that is, that's, that's most of us, maybe all of us. It's, it's anybody who's not a Jew. But in that day, it was, it was the Jews who knew God's word and were following God and worshiping God. And it was all the rest of us that were not. And again, Galilee was, was a place where those mix and mingled. And in one sense, that's beautiful because that's God's design that his people would be a city on the hill, a light to the nations, that, that through the nation of Israel, all other nations would be blessed. But, but really, that wasn't what was happening. They were mixing with the surrounding nations and they were becoming like the surrounding nations. So, so the very uh, title, Galilee of the Gentiles, it would have been born with shame, but God says in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. We get these three geographic markers, these three um, kind of political administrative boundaries 
um, not just geography, but, but how the Assyrians, as they conquered, how they divided these up into you know, local municipalities that they could govern. Galilee to the Gentiles, by the way of the sea, along the Jordan. So these are, these are the territories being conquered that Assyria is, is chopping up and ruling, but they're also the places where Jesus is going to live and conduct so much of his ministry. Galilee, where he grew up, the Jordan River, where he was baptized by John, the, the Sea of Galilee, where he called so many of his disciples, where he walked on water, where he taught the crowds. So we see this promise to honor those who had been humbled in the past, but more importantly, we see a promise of light. Verse 2. It says, the people walking in darkness. Again, that's us. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's a future prophecy. It's not going to happen for over 700 years, and yet it's written in the past tense. He doesn't say this is going to happen. The prophecy is so certain that he writes it as though it has already happened. The people walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's a prophecy not only of Jesus coming to Galilee, but of Jesus coming to us. Again, us who walk in darkness, we who live in the land of the shadow of death, upon us his light has dawned, amen? That's what we sing about, that's what we treasure, that's what we cherish, that the light of the gospel has shined even on us. And then Isaiah, he goes on in this passage to describe the blessings that come with, with this light, the blessings that Jesus brings as he breaks the power of sin and restores the joy of our salvation. And again, he writes it in the past tense because the certainty of God's promises and his blessings are so secure that he can talk about the future as though it's already done. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, and for that you can go back this afternoon, you can read, I think, Judges, like chapter 6 and 7, the situation where, where the people are being oppressed and they're, they're wildly outnumbered and, and overpowered and they can muster 10,000 soldiers, which is not nearly enough, but, but God winnows it down and says, you know, just send 300 into battle because I'm going to deliver you. If you're wondering what that is, I got a new Apple Watch for Christmas and apparently I've got some notifications and apparently... Um, I don't know, maybe I said the magic word or whatever. I won't say it lest I get that again, but Apple people, you know what that is. Figuring that out. This battle, Midian's defeat, where, where God sends his, his army in with like 300 guys against many, many tens of thousands, and yet he delivers. He says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. What is that yoke for us? It's the yoke of our sin. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across the shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle 
and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and fuel for the fire. Or as, as Isaiah says elsewhere, I think it's Isaiah chapter 2, he's, he talks about they will beat their swords into plowshares and they won't prepare for war anymore. This is comprehensive. That Jesus is coming to undo every consequence of the fall, every curse of the fall, because he himself bore our curse that he might destroy all the implications and results of that curse, that he might reconcile us to himself and restore our joy. Then Isaiah finally gives us some concrete clues about the form in which this light would come. Verse 6, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government, meaning the right to rule, the administration, the the leadership of the world, will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with, with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. That is the promise. And in the Christmas story, we see the incarnation of that promise. Not just that light will come, but we see light incarnate, light in the flesh. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 4. Um, beginning with verse 12, where he sets up the context a little bit and then he quotes this very passage as the fulfillment through Jesus. Starting with verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake or by the sea in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. The people living in darkness, the people in this historically shameful, backwater, unfaithful community, that is the community to which the light of the world has come, that Jesus has come, and the people living in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So Jesus himself is the light, and yet his message is also the light. And what is his message? His message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Sometimes we like to emphasize the sunny side of the gospel, and what a beautiful thing to talk about God's grace and his love and his tenderness and his compassion and the way that he pursues that. All of it is wonderful beyond words. And yet part and parcel of the gospel is also this call to repentance. This recognition that we are sinful, that we are broken, that we are rebellious. That we are proud, that in our hearts, every single moment of the day we face these temptations and and too often we embrace the temptation. And we say in our heart, no, I know better than Jesus. 
I know better than God. This is going to be more satisfied than his way, so I'm going to go my way. That's the foolishness that, that leads our hearts away from God, and that's the foolishness that he calls us to repent of. What does it mean to repent? Repent means to do a 180. Whatever direction you're looking, whatever direction you're running, you turn. If, if you only have to turn 60 degrees, beautiful, but most of us, we're going to have to turn 180 degrees from running straight away from Jesus to running straight toward Jesus. That's what faith does. We see that Jesus is better, that he is more satisfying, that he is, is trustworthy, and we hear his call and we run to him. Turning away from our sin and self-sufficiency, turning away from our independence and idolatry, placing our hope in Jesus, placing our faith in Jesus. Because we know that his kingdom is coming and he will reign and we want to be with him on that day. And we want to be with him on this day. Amen? This past week, a a good friend of mine, a mentor of mine from my college years uh, passed away. His name was Mike Thomas. And um, I so wish uh, I could have been there in person for his funeral. I was able to watch it online. Um, It was a two-hour funeral. I don't think I've ever been to or participated in any way in a funeral that was so long, and it was wonderful. I was glad to be there for every minute of it because he was such a faithful, godly man. Uh, Mike was an evangelist. He loved to share the gospel with anybody and everybody. Um, strangers and neighbors, coworkers, clients, whatever it was. He had this deal. Uh, one of the things they highlighted in the funeral, they're like, raise your hand if you've been, if you've, if you've ever had lunch out to eat with Mike. You know, and all sorts of hands go up. And all of them had this shared experience. Anybody who'd been to lunch with this guy in the last 40 years, they they knew that that when the server first came to the table, he would tell them, in a minute, we're going to pray for our meal, and I'd just love to know how we can pray for you. He'd, he'd take prayer requests. He'd pray for the server by name. He'd, he'd be kind and build rapport. At the end of the meal, he's going to give them a huge tip, and he was going to give them a track. And if he could, if he felt like he had enough rapport, he's going to ask for their phone number and, and let them know. He was going to be praying for them for the next 30 days. He had this huge list in his phone, and and if he felt compelled, he was going to roll them over into the next 30 days and just continue to pray for them, and he would follow up with them. Let them know, hey, I'm still praying for you, you know. And he'd like maybe ask him about this track. Now, tracks, they're like the old school way of sharing the gospel. I don't know if if all of you even know what that is, but like a little piece of paper, a little booklet that like explains the gospel story. Sometimes they explain it beautifully. Sometimes they they explain it in in a tacky or offensive way or whatever. But... But he, he had these tracks that he would buy in bulk. He would buy just, these things are tiny, and he would buy them in huge boxes because he would give them away constantly. Um, and it wasn't just that he would share paper. He would, he would uh, use his words to share the gospel whenever he could. But the reason that, that he loved to give out tracks is because that's how his dad came to Christ. Um, his dad, growing up in that home, his dad was an alcoholic. Uh, his dad was an angry drunk. Uh, his, his dad was one of those guys who, you know, every other word was an F-bomb, and with, with um, increasing decibels, the further you got into the conversation. Uh, he, he grew up in desperate fear of his dad. One day, his, his dad's at work. He's a forklift driver, 
and, and he takes a break and he goes to the bathroom and, and in, in that stall, somebody had left a track on top of the toilet paper roll. And he took it, he looked at it, he glanced through it, he put it in his wallet and for the next two and a half months, he would, he would pull that track out of his wallet, you know, when he's got a break at work, when he's driving his forklift, when he, when he gets home from work, when, first thing in the day, whatever. For two and a half months, he kept on taking that in and out of his wallet and looking at it and read, reading through it until one night, Mike's like 11 years old, and he, he falls asleep. And um, the next thing he knows, um, he wakes up to hear his dad sobbing. He'd never seen his dad cry, never heard his dad cry. He figured, man, if dad is crying, he must be really angry. Because that was the only emotion that he knew that his dad had. And so he's, he's like hunkering down, I am staying in bed. And then he starts hearing his dad thundering through the house, shouting, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. And Mike pulls the pillow over, over his head and just, I, am, I don't know what that means, but I am scared to death. The next morning, he, he goes down to the kitchen, and he finds that every beer bottle, every, every can of beer in the house is empty. And his mom's in the kitchen. She's like, Mom, wow, Dad, Dad really got drunk last night. And she's like, no, no, I, I don't know. He, he didn't get drunk. He just dumped all the beer down the drain. It's like, what? And, 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 he, was, and he was shouting. He's like, yeah, yeah, well, what was, what's, what's that mean I'm saved? He's like, I got no idea. I think it has something to do with Jesus. Got home from work that day, and his dad was talking this, talking as slow as he could because he was trying to figure out how to talk without swearing. He was trying to figure out how to be kind to his wife and to his kid. Mike, Mike just started paying attention. It has been days since I've been whipped. A belt has not touched my backside. How many, how many days is this? And then Sunday morning comes and dad says, you got a, a large family, he says, we're all going to church. They'd never been to church. They'd never seen it. They show up for church. They sit on the front row. Good job, guys. Nailing it. Um, <laughs> and the preacher talks about, talks about the gospel. Talks about the reality that God became a man, that he, that he lived the perfect life, that he, that he died an atoning death, that, that, he, that he paid the penalty for our sin and that he rose from the grave. And he called the people to repent to turn from their sin, to turn from their, their self-salvation, to, to turn from their, their own selfish pursuits the way that they want to go, to humble themselves and to run toward Jesus. And for Mike, that was weird, kind of crazy. I don't know what to do with that. But he gets through church. They get back in the car. All the siblings are you know, crammed in the back of the car. Dad sits down in the car before he pulls out of the parking lot. He turns around. He says, that, that, what that guy was talking about, that's me. That, that's what happened to me. Mike's just sitting there on the way home thinking, I don't know what to think about what that preacher said, but I got a new dad. And he is so much better than my old dad. And that day, Mike surrendered his life. To Christ, he placed his faith in Jesus, the little token of understanding that he had about Jesus. And for the rest of his life, he gave out tracts to anybody who would take them. 
and just shared the gospel with, with anybody who would listen. Um, he, he was a lawyer, and when people came into his law office, it was just, it was just policy. He was, he was going to take time to share the gospel with them. He wasn't billing them for that. He was just, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Absolutely beautiful, absolutely wonderful. When Mike shared the gospel with people, he would, um, he's super gracious, super winsome, and he was, um, he was a guy who was just so charming and winsome that he could get away with saying some really hard things. So he'd lovingly share the gospel with them, and then he'd tell them, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to pray for you that God would make you uncomfortable. Emotionally uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable, I don't care. I'm going to pray that God would make you uncomfortable until you either repent and surrender your life to Jesus or you just decide you're going to turn away. And I have no idea why I included the turn away thing. Like, I'm not praying for that. You know, but I've just been reflecting on this all week and just in honor of my friend. That's, that's, that's what I'm calling all of us to. For those of you who don't know Jesus, what you want to do with Jesus, I'm calling you to repent. I'm telling you, I'm going to pray that God will make you uncomfortable, not until you choose or turn away, but until you choose Jesus. You know, for those of us, every single one of us who continues to need to repent, who continues in our foolishness to wander away from Jesus towards whatever else it is, man, I'm going to be praying in the coming weeks that God makes us uncomfortable physically uncomfortable, emotionally uncomfortable, whatever it is, whatever it takes, until we turn our eyes back towards Jesus and resolve again, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to run toward you. Amen? In the Christmas story, we we see light incarnate. But I don't want to end there. I want to recognize that that Jesus came as the light of the world, but he also calls us the light of the world. That he came to bring light into our lives in order that we might be a conduit of light into the lives of others. I don't want to just kind of honor my friend's example by calling the church to repentance. No, I want to invite all of us in a non-Jordan sense to be like Mike and to be conduits of God's grace. And of his light. God has given us light. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, he shines in us that we might shine in the world. He shines in us that we might shine in the world. And by shine, I mean declare the glory of God and the gospel of his grace. That we might usher others into his kingdom. Jesus told his disciples, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. Now in John chapter 8 verse 12, we see Jesus declaring about himself, I am the light of the world. And calling people out of darkness to follow him, he refers to himself as the light of the world. But in Matthew 5.14, he says his disciples, and by implication us, that we are the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. That's your role in this world. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let the light of Jesus shine before men that they might understand by your lips the gospel of his grace and turn to him in faith. Amen? That's what Christmas is about. Yeah, I'm all for the presents and all that sort of thing, but, but Christmas is this season when it's easier to have a faith conversation than maybe any time in the year. Christmas is the season when it's easier to invite people to church than probably any time in the year, including Easter. Christmas is a season that, that we let our light shine all the more brightly that people might be drawn to our Savior. Amen? May we be the light of the world. May we reflect his glory. May we share the hope that we have in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when you promise to bring light, you deliver. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus as light incarnate, as joy incarnate, as, as, as life, that he might bring us life. God, we thank you that you have placed your light within us. And God, we pray that as you allowed your light to shine into our lives, Lord, we pray that we might also shine in the world, that we might be the light of the world for your glory. Amen.